at what Cato did. He took his life rather than work with Caesar. And Cato would say that you're you're sort of contributing more to the human spirit by doing that. So I, I think it's something people people need to need to be aware of kind of the temptations of of justifying things as if they would be for the public good. But really you're working for for a tyrant. Is that where you want to be in life? Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with Professor Josiah Osgood. He is a professor of classics and the author of Uncommon Wrath, a book on the rivalry between Caesar and Cato the Younger. So this is an episode for all of you who love Roman history, especially the history of the late Republic, we talk about the Stoic role model, Cato, his rival, Julius Caesar, how Cato exemplified his Stoicism in his actions, and various political questions about the Roman Republic. The Roman Republic is a useful era to think about because it has these epic stories, epic characters on one hand, and also these recurring questions of ethics. And since it's one we are separated from, our judgments may not be as clouded by the political or ethical allegiances of the day. So with those thoughts, I hope you find this conversation useful, enjoyable, and if you want to learn more about Cato, do check out the book. Here is our conversation. Today, I am here with Professor Josiah Osgood. Josiah is the chair and professor of classics at Georgetown University, and he is the author of Uncommon Wrath, How Caesar and Cato's Deadly Rivalry Destroyed the Roman Republic, which is what we'll be talking about today. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much, Caleb, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So let's set the stage. Just what does Rome look like when Cato and Caesar are entering the world? What's the Rome they grew up in? Yeah, so the Roman Republic had been around for hundreds of years. It is really still the longest living republic in, in history. The U.S. may catch up. We'll see. But so, so they both were born in the city of Rome itself in Italy, which is kind of where, where it all started. And, and by this point, Rome was a, a vast place, the city of Rome, sort of teeming metropolis. And you had these sort of old noble families who were very powerful. They lived in mansions in Rome. And then, of course, you had, you had the ordinary people living in, in very crowded tenement apartments. So, so we have the city of Rome is Edia, obviously. So it's in, in the forum, the, the sort of big square in the heart of Rome where everything will be thrashed out. But then at the same time, it's an empire. And this is really one of the key issues that, that the Romans were dealing with. They had these traditions that went back to the small city-state like Athens or Sparta and Greece. But then in the century or so preceding the birth of these two Romans I write about, they'd acquired a vast, a vast overseas empire, which brought wealth, but also brought controversies. So where does the 
rivalry between Cato and Caesar begin? Yes, so they're both born into these political families, and it was about five years younger, but they're they're roughly coevals. And what happened was they both grew up during a very turbulent time. There was a civil war. They were teenagers during it, basically. And I think this affected both of them um, profoundly. You know, it, it was a terrible time in Rome, right? Heads of of prominent Roman politicians were being lopped off and and displayed in the the public square of Rome. So re- really kind of unimaginable violence almost. And I think they responded to it a little bit differently. Caesar was sort of, his family was was one of those targeted during the violence. And he sort of left left the episode feeling a little bit scared and nervous and and sort of eager to help the underdogs in society as a result of his own his own near victimization. Whereas Cato really left it sort of more with a fear of tyrants. And so I think they have this kind of big divide in the in the way they see the world. And that's sort of we can talk more about it, but but that I think is is philosophically kind of or fundamentally where the rivalry came from. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose you have this figure Sulla, who's one of the characters responsible for much of the violence of the Civil War, of course, and he is both Caesar and Cato's enemy, right? Caesar narrowly misses being killed by Sulla. There's this famous story about Cato, where Cato's like, why are all these people cut putting up with Sulla, this tyrant? You know, just give, give me a sword and, you know, I'll end it. And, yeah, yeah I, and Cato I was 13 at the time, right? So so some people say this is ridiculous. This is just, you know, imagined later in life. But of course, and, and you know, there's something to be said for that. But it, but at the same time, of course, a 13-year-old boy, that is just kind of the thing a 13-year-old boy might say. Yeah, it is, it is the sort of thing one might say, especially if you imagine someone like Cato, I suppose, as a 13-year-old boy. It's not, yeah. it wouldn't be that surprising if he, in fact, said something like that. Certainly. One question I have, do, do you think Cato was a better quaestor than Caesar? Yeah. Yeah. So just just to finish up on Sulla, and, and, and this is part of what makes the late Republic such a fascinating period is that last generation, right? I mean, they really were scarred by the Civil War and sort of very fearful about ever having civil war again. And yet that's that's precisely what the politicians ended up doing. So it, it you know, I think I think the fear of it sometimes led to sort of extreme actions, right? Undertaken for the, the salvation of the republic, as they would say, and yet and yet the clash ended up becoming so fierce that it only could be settled by arms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so quaestorship. Let's talk a little bit about politicians and political careers. So there's a ladder of offices, and you you have to go up the ladder to, to get to the consul, which is the top office. But the first one is the quaestor. And this was a pretty lowly position. There were 20 of them a year. And it's basically a financial job. And most 
young Roman men who were doing it, you know, they just viewed it as a necessary step on on the path to bigger and better things. So, so let's talk about Caesar for a moment, and then Cato. So, sometimes the quaestors were sent to provinces overseas. As we said, Rome has an empire, mm-hmm. has to be administered. So you have these governors who who rule sort of like potentates if they want to in the provinces. But then you have the quaestor who does the finances. And Caesar was sent to part of the Iberian Peninsula, the province of further Spain. And, and apparently he was quite bored by it all and viewed this as, as really suited to his talents. Um, so he, we are told by his biographers, this is another one of these stories where perhaps we should be a little skeptical. Skeptical. We're told he saw a statue of Alexander the Great while he was there in, in a temple of Hercules in Spain and sort of moaned. He said, you know, to think Alexander had conquered the whole world at this age and I'm stuck here, you know, listening to the complaints of provincials and, and doing the taxes. Right. So, so Caesar, you know, Caesar did his, his job there. Now, Cato is quite interesting if we can talk about Cato for a minute here. So he held the same position. Everyone had to. Um, it brought you membership in the Senate, by the way, so it was important. So Cato, we're told, by his biographer Plutarch, who really supplies us with, with so much of Cato's life. Cato got the job, and we're told actually before he even ran for it, he sort of learned all about it. And he pestered people with questions. You know, how does the quaestor do this? How does this work? How do you read the account book for the treasury of Rome? So he mastered the whole position. Then for his year in office, he was actually delegated to work in the main treasury in Rome. And he showed up the first day and said to all the permanent civil servants there, show me the books. And they turn over the ledgers, the public accounts, and Cato, you know, runs his finger down them and starts spotting errors. (laughs) This was completely um, wrong metaphor for Rome, but completely out of left field, right? Normally the quaestors, they didn't bother with this. You know, they were just trying to get through this job so they could move up the ladder. But, But Cato really wanted to do it well. And I think this... We can talk more about some of the things he did, but basically the treasury never ran better than the year young Cato was in charge. He's about 30 years old at this point, by the way. So I think this shows us actually two two big things about Cato. Of course. Um, One, and it's sort of the interesting thing about Cato's life, right? One is that he really was a good politician. And... This was a very interesting way for him to take this relatively unimportant office and sort of achieve a public profile, right? Because no quaestor normally was this thorough. And he could sort of go to the citizens of Rome and say, look at all the money I found for you, right? We had these corrupt officials who were lazy officials or both, right? They they weren't handling the, the treasury well. With all this money, we, we can do more things for you guys, right? So that's kind of Cato the politician, right? And, and he takes on this unique profile. He develops this unique profile as, 
as sort of the guardian of the public's money, you know, sort of like maybe some kind of a budget hawk, we might say nowadays, Mm -hmm. right? You know, somebody who's really going to going to know where every penny is going in, in the public accounts. But then the other thing is, I think it does tie into his stoicism. Right. I mean, the and, and sort of his philosophical values more generally, right? The the Stoic idea is that we we live for each other, right? And not just for ourselves alone. And and the self-serving politician will just do the bare minimum, right? But but Cato, though he's building his own profile, he also was really trying to to take the effort, take the time to actually help his fellow citizens. So I think I think it's an embodiment of of his his sort of stoic desire for a leader to be serving the public good, and and a leader requiring himself to sort of master all the details. That's part. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a exact a, a very well put. I think this aspect of Cato's life, shown here, shown in later episodes, is one of the best expressions of his stoic philosophy. This focus on ordinary values like fairness, taking a stand against corruption, but doing so in a way that was personally demanding, not just in the sense of making many enemies, but also taking the time to master relatively boring logistical details. And of course, for for listeners of the podcast, who many of whom I'm sure read Marcus Aurelius, it is kind of the same impulse we see with with Marcus Aurelius, right? Who, you know, will spend 10 days on a trial if he thinks that's how long it will take to to achieve justice, right? And and sort of has to remind himself and urge himself on to attend to all the little the little parts of the job, the tedious parts of being Roman emperor. But what's so interesting, right? So we see mm-hmm. how the kind of practically a politician in a Republican context rather than the imperial context, is sort of trying to use stoicism as a, as a way to think about good governance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting because sometimes you get the contrast between Cato and Caesar as Cato's the, you know, effectively the aristocrat and Caesar's the populist and Cato's out of touch, doesn't, is ignoring the populace while pursuing these lofty aristocratic ideals what have you. And there's certainly something to that cut, but I think it's a little bit too, too broad, I would say, as this, this sort of story illustrates. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That, and, and this goes back really to, you know, the fact that we are in a republic and, um, you know, every politician, at least in the Roman Republic sort of has to pay lip service to the idea that, that everything should be done for the benefit of the people. But, but Cato certainly really did try to live up to that, that ideal. And so to, to say that, you know, he scorns the people is, is completely wrong. Now, that being said, I think he's a bit more keen on, on sort of having, having kind of the Senate and experienced members of the Senate who do tend to come from from the same families generation after generation. He is keen to see them running things. But but I think that that sort of ties into 
questions about about how they then should conduct themselves right mm-hmm. and, and that's part of why he's pushing pushing stoicism too is that leaders have have a duty to to behave well mm-hmm. well how much do we know about how stoicism entered cato's life you know, like when did he become stoic when did he hear about it yeah so i, I want to mention one book here, not my own book, but a, a book by a colleague of mine. Her name is Kit Morrell. She teaches at the University of Queensland in Australia. And she wrote a book a few years ago about Pompey, Cato, and the governance of the Roman Empire, especially the provinces. And she really makes a powerful case for Cato as a Stoic. And a lot of earlier scholarship sort of wrote this off. And sort of thought, well, you know, these later Stoics in the Roman Empire, they kind of looked back to Cato and turned turned him into a sort of martyr for their cause, right? Mm-hmm. And and played up his Stoicism. But I, I think Kip Morrell has really made a good case that the evidence is, is pretty strong. So I'll give you one or two indications of it, right? This may be known to some of your your listeners, right? Cicero, late in life, when he was writing philosophical dialogues, he assigned the Stoic part. So that's one indication. But if if you read Plutarch, Plutarch says it too, right? That Cato, right, very early on in life, got interested in Stoic philosophy. He went to the East on military service as a young man, and he sort of got a vacation leave of absence, and he went to Pergamum, the great city in Asia Minor in modern Turkey, and he befriended there a Stoic philosopher, um, a guy named Athenodorus, and then invited him back to Rome, sort of charmed him into coming back to Rome and, and becoming his mentor. Other Romans did this sort of thing. Cicero lived with a Stoic as well. So it was definitely in the air, I think scholars are increasingly realizing. Um, that that these Roman were looking to philosophy and often to Stoicism in particular as a way of thinking about sort of the problems they were living through and and the problems of empire, which is really what Kip Morrell's book is about. Mm. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So, how did Cato and Caesar's rivalry then progress? You know, where where did it come to a, a head? So it it sort of started with these differences in in sort of. Cato's seeing that the Senate should be more in charge of sort of guiding the Republic. And and Caesar really looking to the people, the Roman people and their assemblies, right? And and sort of the whole problem with the Roman Republic, one way of thinking about it, is that there was just this, this ongoing debate about where power lay. You know, contrast it with the United States, the founders, the writers of the Constitution, I mean, the United States really fundamentally does give more power to the people. And you can throw out politicians in the American system, right? In the Roman system, senators tend to be there for life. So there is this real debate. So so they're, they're taking different sides in that. But then there's a particular moment when the rivalry really began. And it was in the year 63 BC, there was a conspiracy by a disgruntled politician named Catiline, one of the oldest families in Rome. 
And he sort of felt the consulship should be his by birthright. And he kept losing elections and grew very embittered and actually ultimately decided to try to march on Rome to usurp office. So the the two of them, Caesar and Cato, they're they're not at the most senior ranks, but they're they're getting there. And there was a big debate about what to do with some of Catiline's followers who were caught back in Rome. The question was, but they were conspiring against the Republic. So the sort of normal criminal procedures maybe didn't work here, right? Because the threat was so imminent. So basically, some people want these guys treated like traitors, enemies of the state. And in the Roman system, that could mean, probably did mean, execution. Sounds very, very harsh, but there was a Roman tradition for that. Um, So Caesar gets up in the Senate and gives this very interesting speech after everyone's been saying, execute them. And he says, hold on, this is going to harm the Senate's reputation. Let's create a new penalty of life imprisonment. And people started to go for that. And then Cato, who's really just entered the Senate, still up and coming, he gets up and gives what apparently was the speech of his life. And he said, our ancestors would be disgusted. These people are enemies. They need to be treated like that. If we don't take serious action now, we're endangering the Republic. And Cato's view prevailed. The the five men who had been caught were executed. And this was sort of a great triumph, at least in the moment for Cato. And, And Caesar was sort of left for the moment looking a little bit humiliated. Now, during the debate, Cato also kind of hinted that Caesar himself might have sympathized with the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So from this point on, they were enemies. And one thing to know about Roman politics, I, I argue that their rivalry was epic. And you know, it actually became the stuff of epic poetry later. So, so literally, it was epic. But the thing to know is these these rivalries weren't unheard of in Roman politics, right? Because there weren't well-organized political parties. You often would sort of surround one champion or another. So, So from this point on, they both kind of accumulated more and more followers and and became the standard bearer of one view or another. Yeah, that's right. I suppose another thought on these rivalries is that because of Roman culture, there are these ideas of honor, of course, that can, I'm not sure if if we want to say, at least it seems very plausible to me that people would take slights much more seriously than the typical American would today. And of course, you have these kind of personal animosity that can brew over years. You also get the animosity between Clodius and Cicero, I think, from that the sorts of thing that will just span over for years. I'm not sure if you agree with that assessment, but I think that is another relevant relevant thing to keep in mind. Oh, yeah. I, I completely agree with it. This is an honor culture. And, and reputation is another word to throw into the mix here, right? Which, you know, goes back to Homer, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to have any kind of great afterlife unless you live on in memory and you're, you know, sort of have the glory of that. So so reputation matters hugely and, and honor. And then it ties into into the 
way politics is is conducted, you can't fall back on your party, right? Because there aren't really parties. So, you know, each each man, it's all men in politics, is sort of constantly and everyone is constantly calibrating how much power each person has, right? How big is your crowd today? How many people are cheering for you? Do lots of people sit by you in the Senate? That must mean you have lots of friends and power. And ooh, nobody is sitting by you today. Your stock is plummeting, right? So yeah, this very much is the way Roman politics works. And of course, it's true to some degree now. It's very true in the first years of the United States Republic in the 1790s, right, before you get well-organized political parties and, and mm-hmm. anyone who's seen the musical Hamilton, right? I mean, think about how honor looms so large in, in the life of Alexander Hamilton and, and, and Jefferson, right? So, so that's, that's another period I think Americans can kind of think about that, that's sort of where you see that honor dynamic generating these rivalries. Mm-hmm. And politics that are both personal, but also as as the politicians claim anyway, about what's good for the people, what's good for the republic. Right, right. What would you say is Caesar's life philosophy if he had one? So I think if you look at Cato, you have you know his life philosophy is influenced by Stoicism. He has also some of these ideas that many Romans would have at the time about what it is to be a good politician, a good member of his family, a good man. And so on, but but what would you say about about Caesar for, for for that question? Yeah, so Caesar is sometimes thought to be Epicurean in sympathies, mm-hmm. right? I haven't. We don't have the same evidence there that we do for Cato and his Stoicism, right? But they're certainly in public, and and this may tie in a little bit with his his skill at crafting a persona. But, but Caesar could be sort of almost serene in some ways in public, which I know s- sounds like an odd thing to say about somebody who's, you know, the conqueror of Gaul and, and has thousands of deaths at his hands, right? But he, he often would sort of laugh things off, I think, or at least make the pose of doing that. So he, you know, he would smile. We're told he's charming, very different from Cato, who you know, apparently went around frowning all the time, although, although Cato could laugh occasionally, fortunately. But so in terms of his politics, right, Caesar cared about two things, right? He cared about his own reputation, his own honor, as, as others did. But he did also, I think we have to say, care about the, the honor of the Roman people. I, he just thought that should be pursued in a different way. So one, you know, thing Caesar became very interested in was war. Now, of course, this was traditional in Rome, right? Go fight wars. But the wars of the late Republic, there were these sort of great wars of conquest that that were on a scale in some ways unprecedented. Pompey did this a little bit, Caesar's, Caesar's friend and then enemy Pompey. And then Caesar did it in Gaul and what is modern France, right? He went there and sort of conquered this vast territory. Now, you know, by modern 21st century standards, this looks like the most naked imperialism possible. And it was, it was, of course, but it did mean benefits for the Roman people, wealth and 
and land that Caesar would give his his soldiers who fought with him. So I think he he sort of has a, a vision of, of Rome's future that is kind of tied into empowering empowering the Roman people more and and sharing the good life with them. Um, he, he, a phrase I use in the book is kind of lavishness. Caesar has this sort of idea of lavishness. He likes to live lavishly himself and thinks that that those who follow him can enjoy that kind of a life too. So maybe that yeah. goes back to the point about Epicureanism a little bit, right? I, yeah, that's right. I guess one of the famous Epicurean lines is that you you stay in the garden and you try to keep your hands clean of the politics. But I think I think it was Machiavelli who has this idea that you know, modernity is Epicurean, in it, but it's a pursuit of pleasure, a pursuit of pleasure for glory. And perhaps there's some of that in Caesar. So there's a specific kind of good that one might be after. You have these ideas, of course, of honor, but also pleasure and high fashion. Lavishness uh, is an excellent, excellent word for this too. Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, maybe maybe listeners of this podcast would choose to go have dinner with Cato over Caesar, but I I think most people would probably rather have had dinner at Caesar's house. You know, you would have had a, a more lavish spread, probably nicer art to look at, and and very witty conversation pouring out of of Caesar himself. So. You know, Cato, you'd be quizzed about stoicism and yeah, giving right. some terrible wine to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Although there would be plenty of the wine. Cato did like to. Yeah, he did have, at least he did have drinking parties, I suppose we can say. Uh, yeah. Maybe they yeah, would have. Like Socrates, been. right? Right, right. Well, I suppose now uh, we can pivot to a different question if you like, but. Uh, fill in some intermediary steps if you like. But one question I wanted to ask is, of course, Cato, he's seen as a Stoic model, yet at the same time, many of the decisions he makes in order to save the Republic do not in fact seem, at least in hindsight, to have that, the desired effect for him. His moral uprightness pushes away potential allies. And that you know brings up the question, was Cato ultimately a good steward of the late republic yeah this is the question about cato and you know i think about it constantly and i'll just say at the start i i don't think at least my personal view is there there's not sort of a straightforward answer to that question so it's something just to keep to keep sort of thinking about, I think there are many facets to the problem. And, and it sort of depends about also what time frame you look at too, right? right? Maybe maybe Cato kept a, a Republican ideal alive for the very long run societies had benefited from, even if Rome didn't. So, so it, it, it's a fascinating question. The same question about Marcus Brutus, I think Cato's kinsman of Cato couple years later and his assassination of Caesar, right? So, you know, how would I answer it? Kind of in, in the political realm, I think what you that Cato's rigidity, right, really is not how to make politics work. And if you want 
political outcomes, outcomes where people are going to negotiate and talk with each other, try to find some kind of consensus that makes nobody happy, but can keep the peace then those qualities that, that Cato excelled in that were so good for publicity, for raising attention, probably were bad ones. So, so that kind of is my verdict on, on him in, in his own immediate situation. And, and he did give away potential allies and, and with this sort of conspiratorial rhetoric that he favored, right? He, he kind of made Caesar worried about what would happen. And that drove Caesar to more extreme, extreme steps too. So it's it's kind of the furies of partisanship, right? Each side thinks they're doing the right thing, but goes further and further apart, and then compromise is impossible. Now, of course, sometimes you might think in life compromise shouldn't be possible, right? I mean, there are areas where people will refuse to compromise, but I think in this case, it really was was the civil war that broke out really what could have been prevented and probably should have. But Cato and his allies made it made it likelier and, and really caused it. So the other thing I'd say, once you're in civil war, right, you kind of have to fight the war to win. If you're going to go that way, you have to militarize. And I think there Cato had a problem too, right? Because he was so ethically committed, right? You know, he didn't want to treat allies badly or harshly during the Civil War. And that's very, you know, the greatest general of the day, one of the greatest in all of Roman history. You've got to be ready to fight if you're going to go down that path. And during the Civil War, we're told, right, Cato kind of skulked around. He grew a beard in mourning for his country, right? And, and we can respect that gesture, but, you know, it's not exactly the thing among the troops necessarily. So, so I think actions are definitely open to question. Yeah. Now, the point about a timeline is always an interesting one because you could have the following view that, look, Cato, he plausibly sped up the fall of the late Republic made it more likely that Rome would face yet another civil war. But despite that, provided a model that was inspirational to people who lived hundreds of years after him. And it does sort of bring bring out that question, you know, given that political actions are so difficult to predict to begin with, why not take the sort of the Cato-like strategy of thinking about, you know, What's the best principles I should uphold and let the second order, third order effects be damned. Those are just going to be a, a wash in the great, great scheme of history. Yeah, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. You know, I, I think ideally you can sort of have both character and strategy and good leadership, but, you know, it, it's easy for the scholar to, you know, sit in the study and say that looking back on the record hundreds of years later and uh, you know think of think of abraham lincoln i mean he won the civil war and he he abolished slavery but he had no idea that it would you know take hundreds of thousands of, of 
have young American men killed to achieve that, right? And that, and that was a, a burden that weighed on his mind and, and, and was, was hard for him to live with. Or uh, on a more positive note, let's go back to the 1790s again for a moment, you know, Cato's inspiration living on during the winter at Valley Forge, we know that George Washington staged the 18th century play about Cato and kind of by, by Joseph Addison and sort of tried to use Cato as a role model, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're trying to create a government where we're going to live for each other, not just for one king and, and serve each other. You know, there's going to be a lot of sacrifices to make that happen. And, you know, if the French hadn't intervened in the, the American Revolution, maybe, maybe Britain would have won. So, yeah, these, these things, as you say, you know, it, it's sort of a, a question, right, that, that anyone, even, even in, you know, less epic situations is going to face. Um, do you stick to principles and where do you compromise? Oh, yeah, I think that's right. That's exactly right. Well, of course, we're a stoic podcasts are going to be more on Team Cato, but we should also ask, you know, what, what can we learn from a figure like Caesar, who perhaps, you know, the Stoics thought virtue was unitary, so maybe they wouldn't call him virtuous, but he at least had hints of admirable qualities. Of course, he's exceptionally competent, wasn't uh, the populace, and uh, was, I think in one podcast, you describe him as almost demonically energetic. But apart from those those facts, you know, what, what can we learn from from the man? So, yeah, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I'm I'm Team Cato too. I think so. So we're in good company. <laughs> but I mean, Caesar is kind of a fascinating character, and you know, one thing that I think could be said about him again, obviously, by modern standards, we're not going to think much started for his own ambition. But you've got to give him credit. I mean, he really was a superb leader. And out in out in Gaul, you know, when he was in very dicey situations, the battles weren't going his way. He'd pick up the sword or the shield, you know, go to the front of the line and rally the soldiers. And really had had that kind of leadership quality that, that I think is very compelling. And, and there is something we can take from that, right? Right. If you're in a, a leadership position, really sort of getting in there and, and achieving solidarity with, with everyone in, um, in your organization. That, that's the kind of thing where I think Caesar really did excel. He, you know, he also, maybe this sounds a little bit cynical, right? But, but he, I mean, he was a wonderful writer and he, he really sort of knew how to get a story out. And one, one thing potentially you could fault Cato for was even though he did have these wonderful sort of skills at publicizing himself, right? I mean, it interests me that Cato left behind no writing, nothing, not a word. And we know this isn't really just because we've lost things. This was some, for some reason, kind of a strategy on his part. Hmm. And you know, Caesar, Caesar kind of uh, did know how to create something that would last beyond him. So I, I think there's something that, that won't. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the only written piece we have from Cato, only aspect of his writing, I think, is a, a letter to Cicero, right? 
Yes. How he can't deny, essentially denying Cicero a honor. Cicero had requested, I think. Yeah, it's a wonderful letter. Thanks for mentioning it. Uh, yeah, so so when I say Cato didn't write, what what I mean is he didn't like Cicero write yeah, you know, yeah. philosophical works, mm-hmm. sort of trying to explain how can you apply Stoicism to your life, right, right, and and maybe if you know circumstances have been different, Cato in, in old age would have done something like that, like Cato the Elder, his great grandfather, right, became a writer of history. But yeah, but but he did write a letter that because we have Cicero's correspondence, we have Cato's letter to Cicero. And we, we also have letters Cicero wrote to Cato. And those are, by the way, very revealing too, because Cicero was sent to govern a province of the Roman Empire. And he writes all these letters to Cato, defending his record, saying, I've treated the allies. These are basically the subjects of the Roman Empire, but they call them the allies. I've treated the allies leniently with justice. So it reveals a lot about Cato's values. Mm-hmm. But then Cicero, th- this is a comic moment. Cicero eked out a victory over some peoples living in the mountains between Asia Minor and, and Syria. And he wanted a triumph, a big military parade. So he writes Cato begging for help. And, you know, Cato sends a very disappointing note back to Cicero saying, you know, oh, basically the, the glory of, of having run the Roman Empire with moderation should be enough for you, Cicero. <laughs> Cicero is completely bummed. And then Julius Caesar sends a note. We don't have it all to Cicero saying, Cato has treated you appallingly. Right. So that shows you Caesar's political talent, right? That he could sort of prey on Cicero in that, in that vulnerable moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great story. Another question that always comes up in this is, you know, was the Republic worth saving to begin with? You have all these structural problems around land ownership, the power of generals. And certainly one view that I find plausible is that the Republic is uh, essentially expiring. And the question is, how fast is it going to last? by the time Cato enters enters the scene. So I yeah, I'm curious about that. How do you and I suppose we can also contrast that with, you know, what happened after after the Republic. Perhaps it wasn't wasn't so bad, maybe worse in terms of some's political liberties, but the you know, largely the Roman yeah, individual liberty. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it, it's another great question and part of why this period is so so fascinating, right? So you know, the, I think the argument that that the Republic had to go, to me, kind of the strongest point for that would sort of just be how much civil war do people have to live through? How many, how much violence? You know, there's a lot of intermittent violence in the city of Rome as well, right? So, so from that point of view, arguably, you know, for for some period of years, decades, you, you know, the Republic was kind of, was kind of failing, right? So the question is, is, you know, what do you do about that? And is, is an emperor the way you want to go? And how much, how much better was life 
under Roman emperors, you know, it sort of depended on who you were. So I, I you know, as somebody committed to democracy, right, I think in the best of all worlds, the Roman Republic could have reformed itself and and continue to stay committed to the idea that we're going to settle things through political debate, through votes. It probably should have gone more, more democratic, right, in my opinion, which really wouldn't be the way somebody like a Cato would have put it. But, but to solve these in, intractable debates, right, you sort of needed an arbiter. And in a democracy, the people become the arbiter. So, you know, I'm not giving you a, a firm answer here, but I hope that those are a few things to think about anyway, right? That it doesn't have to be sort of a, a republic that has to die, um, but we can see we can see why it struggled so much mm-hmm. and why why people were prepared to look for alternatives. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you have a follow up question to that, I suppose, is you have some Stoics who, instead of opposing tyranny, decide that instead of they'll advise tyranny and make it as best as it can be. So Augustus has Stoic teachers. And advisors, I think Arius Didymus is the most well-known one, and you know they they appear to have made the choice that it's at least much better to have someone who can hold up some amount of order to prevent all this violence than uh, rescue, you know, what was left of the Republic. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it is. A- you know, many intellectuals will find tempting mm-hmm. to, you know, to be, to go back to Hamilton, to be in the room where it happens. Right. Right. That, so, and I think we can, you know, sort of justify to ourselves a lot of things. Um, and, you know, in, in the government or in the organization, because I will be able to make it better and, and be a force for good, right? So I, you know, I think we need to be aware of that temptation. Did, you know, Seneca, well, I mean, maybe for a few years, he did make Nero's government better than it would have been. And Nero, of course, was what, just 16 when, when Seneca mm-hmm. took over. So there were some opportunities still. But, you know, somebody like a Cato, I think, is going to lean more on the side of it's really better just to, well, I mean, look at what Cato did. He took his life rather than work with Caesar. And Cato would say that you're, you're sort of contributing more to, to kind of the human spirit by doing that. So I, I think it's something people, people need, to, need to be aware of kind of the temptations of, of justifying things as if they would be for the public good. But really, you're working for, for a tyrant. Is that where you want to be in life? No, yeah, that's right. That's certainly right. And it could, could it's likely the case that some people have made that choice wisely and well, but the vast, I would expect, the majority, uh, whether or not they make the decision well, later are faced with pressures that you know, reveal that perhaps they, they made a mistake. Yeah. Seneca, I mean, of course, what do you think? Example. Does does the true Stoic go to work for for a tyrant? I think that in the yeah, that's a good great question. 
So it's interesting, I think, that Cato advises his son, I believe, not to take the same path as he does. And I think what that reveals is the Stoic has some amount of flexibility in choosing what they think the best social role will be in what, you know, whatever situation they find themselves in. And then maybe, you know, once they've chosen that role, that's where you, you stick to it. And, you know, you've made a decision like Cato, I ideally you would be principled. I think that's, that's where I lean at the moment is that you have some amount of flexibility, different circumstances people will find themselves in, which means that people like Aristotelemus could have wisely chosen to advise Augustus. But it also means that perhaps the best choice for people like Thorsea, the Stoic opposition, was to oppose Nero and but play that role in that at that time. So I suppose the short answer is sometimes one can be in a position where the best thing to do is advise a tyrant. Of course, there's some questions around the definition of tyrant, but at least in the case of Augustus, it seems justified to me. But there is this, as you say, this large force that should make one suspicious of making that decision. And often many Stoic models, of course, Cato, the Stoic opposition later, are going to be people who do the exact exact opposite. Yeah, I, I think that's really helpful. And I think that is a point to take away about Cato, right, is his is ideas, you say, that that not everyone actually has to be a Cato, which I think is an interesting point of his stoicism, as best mm. we can reconstruct it, right? That, you know, there are these moments in the Civil War, you know, when, for example, Cicero shows up in Pompey's camp to fight Caesar and and Cato says to him, well, why did you bother to come? You would have been better off staying in Italy where you could try to negotiate things. And, you know, at first, you first read that passage, it's in Plutarch, and she's like, whoa, Cato, that seems very squishy, very uncompromising, right? But but that actually was more suited towards Cicero's nature and his skills. He was a compromiser and, mm-hmm. and interested in compromises politically. That, that was how he he operated. So, so you see that in, in Cato and, and I think that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that always, that also comes up in the question of his death. Of course, you have the question, would, would Cato have been better had he accepted Caesar's note of clemency and worked to you know, improve the things there? Or would he just not have been Cato if he hadn't done what he did? I think the, you know, the latter option is, more plausible speech. Yeah. Can you imagine Cato going into the Senate, you know, with Caesar sitting there on his golden chair? I mean, it's just wearing his purple robe and, and his laurel crown. It's just, you, can, you can't conceive it. At least I can't. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, he, I think he, I think he had to, had to go. Well, one last question. Are there any figures that people interested in Cato, Caesar, Stoics generally, should look at more any maybe sort of unknown figures we haven't mentioned or people who are talked less about in in roman history yet for this period yeah so i i do have one answer it's kind of a stretch but i'll just put it out there i actually think a very interesting roman if we go back much earlier in roman history is fabius maximus he was a Roman politician during the Second Punic War, the fight against Hannibal. 
and he was or sort of a senior politician at the time and he famously advocated the fabian strategy you know named after him of course right that that we'll have to wear hannibal down because we can't take him on in battle we'll lose and he got a lot of criticism for this right because romans like to fight battles mm -hmm. and how can we just sit here and let hannibal lurk in italy and he stuck to that view because he thought it was what was best for the republic for the common good so he's not a stoic right at least i i don't think so i mean it seems unlikely to me but he becomes a kind of embodiment of civic virtue sort of looked back to that generation of romans too and especially somebody like fabius maximus sort of for inspiration right and and sort of philosophical values in general you're gonna in public life it's hard people are going to criticize you you're going to take a lot of heat and that kind of steadfastness of fabius right i i think cato did sort of model himself on that so there's the wonderful plutarch life of fabius maximus that's that's a good read on fabius and of course fabius later was uh somebody people compared George Washington to for the strategic ability and also the ability not to let criticism sort of stick to him. Mm -hmm. So I, I think he's, he's an interest, probably was an inspiration for, for Cato. I mean, he was kind of a Roman hero. Mm -hmm. So he had to have been in, in some ways a hero for all Romans, not just Cato. That's a great example. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, no, I would just tell tell listeners, yeah, if you're interested in, in Caesar and Cato, then check out the book. There's a, an audio version on, on Audible. And thanks for having me today to, to talk about Cato and, and Caesar, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.